All right, we're in the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 13, if you'd like to navigate over there in your Bible or on your device. Mark chapter 13, we're going to look at verses 1 through 37, the whole chapter. The topic, Jesus explains that believers will be able to know his second coming is near, just like you can know that summer is near by looking at a tree. The title of our message, Watch Out for That Tree. Let's pray. (laughs) Oh, Lord, thank you so much for bringing us here to this place. It's a joy, Lord, that we can sit in relative comfort, at ease, and take in the word of God. Just soak it in. But I pray that we would not take it lightly, but that we would realize that you want to get between the soul and the spirit, that you want to really minister to our hearts, showing us things that are wonderful and beautiful and amazing about your love for us, about your grace, about who you are and who you're making us into. We want to do justice to this text, Lord. We want to understand why it was written and who it was written to originally and what they uh, took from it, but also what we can gain from it as well. Do all those things by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that he would be our teacher and that we would have ears to hear what he says to us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. It's a common theme in literature and in film, partly because it's something we can all relate to. Stay on the path, being mindful that there will be deceptions and distractions and disastrous detours along the way. Dorothy and the Scarecrow and the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion are on the yellow brick road. Along the way, Dorothy and her friends are hindered and menaced by the wicked witch of the West. She incites trees to throw apples at them and then tries to set the scarecrow on fire. Within sight of the city, the witch conjures up a field of poppies that causes sleep. It must have been in California. Glinda saves them by making it snow, which counteracts the effects of the poppies. In The Hobbit... Bilbo and the company of dwarves is warned by Gandalf and Bjorn to not stray from the path through Mirkwood Forest. The forest, though, plays tricks on their minds, and eventually they see a light and they leave the path to their great dismay and disaster. Swim through the trench, not over it, the school of fish tells Dory. Marlin disregards the warning, and the two of them nearly are killed from coming in contact with the jellies. Now, in our verses, Jesus gives his followers a glimpse into the near and the far future. It's a discourse rich with prophetic insights. Don't overlook, though, his comments throughout, because there he's encouraging his followers to stay on the path, to stay the spiritual course, despite things that would try to stumble them or overtake them. For example, in verse 5, Jesus says, take heed that no one deceives you. In verse 13, Jesus says, he who endures to the end shall be saved. In verse 23, Jesus says, take heed. In verse 35, Jesus says, watch. And then in verse 37, Jesus says, and what I say to you, I say to all, watch. With the destruction of the second temple just decades away and the construction of a third temple in the future, Jesus was concerned that his followers in every generation stay the course. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, don't let the destruction of the second temple stumble you. And number two, don't let the construction of the third temple overtake you. Let's take a look first of all at Jesus' comments about the second uh, temple in verses 1 through 13. 
I spent considerable time in our last study describing the magnificence of the temple. It was called Herod's Temple after King Herod, who is an extraordinary, visionary, genius builder. Construction began in 20 BC, and it wasn't completed until 64 AD. The original temple was built by Solomon, then destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in 586 BC. After their 70-year exile in Babylon was over, Zerubbabel oversaw the rebuilding of the temple. Herod's project was considered a build-out of the second temple, not a third temple. And so if you're numbering these things, Solomon's temple was the first temple. Zerubbabel's temple, added to by Herod, is the second temple. And then there will be a third temple in the future. And so verse 1, then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Every year when the disciples visited the temple at Passover or at one of the other feasts, they were awestruck by it. Jesus was about to let them in on the future of that temple and it was going to assault their preconceptions. Verse 2, and Jesus answered and said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. What was prophecy to the twelve is history to us. Titus and his legions did destroy the temple in 70 AD. Despite orders to the contrary, the soldiers burned the structure and razed it to the ground. The way the story is usually told, the fires melted the gold that ornamented the stones and it got into the cracks. To retrieve the valuable gold, the stones were overturned until not one was left standing. Verse 3, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? The twelve were in kingdom now mode. They fully expected Jesus to be installed as king and for him to inaugurate the kingdom of God on the earth. They knew from reading their scriptures that the temple played a crucial role in the future kingdom. So they were understandably confused about its prophesied destruction. Taking Jesus' comments from verse 5 through verse 13 as a unit, his main concern is that his disciples, the ones who lived during the time the second temple is destroyed, not be stumbled by thinking that somehow God's plans for history have been thwarted. He was not so much giving us a chronology as he was issuing a warning to disciples at any stage along the prophetic timeline after his ascension into heaven. Atop the mountain, they were about 100 feet higher than the highest point of the temple when they asked him this question. Since this was the Mount of Olives, scholars have called this talk the Olivet Discourse. And so in verse 5, Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am he and will deceive many. Deception is a characteristic of the entire time Jesus has been absent from the earth. Whether it's someone claiming to be Jesus or some new religion or some secular discovery, literally millions of people have been and are being led astray to a Christless eternity. And so the Lord says, not you. You be aware that deception is going to be woven into the fabric of the entire time I'm gone. Don't 
be deceived. Verse 7, but when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Wars are inevitable. God is not the cause of them. When he says they must happen, it doesn't mean that he is the cause of them. They arise out of our sinful, selfish natures. We can't all just get along. I think we've proven that throughout history. That same rage that you express in road rage uh, is expressed on a national level throughout history as we go to war against each other. So it's just part of human nature, Jesus is saying. Now, why mention this? Because wars worry people that the end of the world is at hand. Especially in the nuclear era, there is always talk that mankind will wipe itself out. It incites tremendous fear in people, even in the people of God. Even if you don't go to the movies regularly, you could probably name a half a dozen movies about nuclear winter or post-apocalyptic you know, nuclear blasts and stuff. And, and, and people worry about this. I remember being a little boy in the 1960s during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Little did I know that the X-Men had it all under control. But uh, we were, I, I thought, man, we're going to be blown up and I would die because I wasn't at school and I couldn't get under my desk. I knew that I would be safe under my desks, uh, you know, because that blast. Remember that famous picture of the house that's just leveled? If you look closely, you'll see that the desks are intact. Of course, the people have three heads, but it doesn't matter. And so, um, anyway, uh, people worry that, the, that the mankind is going to destroy itself with the pushing the buttons in the next war. And the Lord is saying, that's not going to happen. Mankind will not wipe itself out because God has an end game. It isn't nuclear winter. Then in verse 8, there will be earthquakes in various places and famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. Natural disasters unnerve us as well. I have a favorite line of dialogue from the movie World War Z. Mother nature is a serial killer. No one's better or more creative. You know, people who want to get in touch with nature. Yeah, grizzly bears eat you. That's what happens to people that want to get in touch with nature. Mother nature is harsh. She's a killer. There's no morals. There's no conscience in nature. Uh, And so, uh, but our fear is that just in a few weeks, a natural or some man-made pandemic could decimate the population of the planet. You've seen those charts, you know, where patient zero, well, how fast is it going to spread? Pretty soon the entire planet is affected. Everybody on the earth is dead from this pandemic. It can seem as though we're never going to get to Armageddon. Armageddon could be a good thing compared to some of this other stuff. We'll never get there. But we are going to get to the prophesied end. God works by his providence to bring his program forward. This is what Jesus is saying. These things are all going to be part of the age in which you live before my second coming, don't be distracted by them. Beginnings of sorrows can be translated the beginnings of birth pains. That's better because it's actually hopeful. No woman enjoys birth pains, but as they come with greater frequency and intensity, you know they'll soon be over and you'll have given birth. Jesus was saying that all the things which might worry you that God's promises about the future will fail are only pains along the way. The end will come according to plan. 
Verse 9, but watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils. You'll be beaten in the synagogues. You'll be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. Jesus' concern is for his followers. We must watch out that we are not deceived or distracted to take a detour from following him just because we don't see how things are working out. He mentions persecution. We see this type of persecution beginning in the book of Acts. And it continues right through church history, right through today. It's intended to stop believers from sharing about Jesus. We must not think it's strange, but remember that Jesus predicted it. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. This is first and foremost an encouragement to these original disciples that even though they would be severely persecuted and martyred, it would not prevent their mission of going into all the world preaching the gospel. In other words, the Jews and the Romans could not stop them no matter what they threw at them. Russia is banning all forms of evangelism outside the walls of the church buildings. Did you read about that? It's in the news. They want to ban all forms of evangelism or sharing your faith unless you do it in church. So if somebody stumbles into church, you can talk to them about God. But you can't even send an email according to these new rules because that would be illegal. You know what's going to happen to the church in Russia? It's going to explode. It's going to grow. Because that's what always happens when the church is persecuted. These world leaders, they just can't figure it out. I remember when we were worried about communist China because they were closed off to everyone. What is going on with the Christians there? How hard must it be? And indeed it was hard, but when China got opened up, we found that there were hundreds of millions of Christians, born-again Christians, in the underground church movement because you cannot fight against the spread of the gospel. It cannot fail to be preached. God will see to it in this age and in the future. Now, looking to the future, in the great tribulation, the gospel will be preached literally to every creature on the earth by many empowered witnesses and even by an angel. I mention that because some people take this scripture and they try to say that until the gospel gets into the entire planet, Jesus can't come back. Well, then that makes us in charge of the return of the Lord. And so if the Lord says, I could come back at any moment, but it really can't be until you've gone to the last person on earth, then we're in charge of that timing and we're blowing it. And so it's it's illogical and it's not spiritual. Jesus was telling his disciples the gospel would spread. And in the tribulation, God will have two empowered witnesses from heaven. No one can kill them until halfway through the tribulation. He'll have 144,000 Jewish evangelists, 144,000 Paul the Apostles on the planet. And if that's not enough, Revelation tells us, I think it's chapter 14, an angel will go through the heavens preaching the gospel to everyone on the planet. And so that is what's going to happen. Every other article I read in contemporary Christian magazines or on blogs is about how the church is failing. Notwithstanding, we must be certain we remain on task as a local church, that we judge ourselves and, and let the Lord search us as a church. The church cannot fail and it will not fail in its mission of bringing the gospel to the world. Now, verse 11, but when they arrest you and deliver you up, don't worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, 
but the Holy Spirit. We see this too in the book of Acts. The religious authorities marveled at the disciples as they answered charges against them. They said, these are ignorant men who have been with Jesus Christ. And it blew their minds. Stephen, the first martyr of the church age, gave an amazing speech that rattled the Jewish leadership so much that they stoned him to death as his face glowed looking into heaven. And so this promise continues through the church age. If you ever find yourself delivered up, God will by his spirit give you the power to be his witness. You read Fox's book of martyrs or these other accounts of modern day martyrs and you see the courage and the, and the uh, you know, strength and the witness that they give and you think, I could never do that. Well, you don't need to do it right now. Nobody's cutting your head off right now. But Jesus says, when you get to that point, when you're on your knees and when that scimitar is at your throat, he will fill your heart with his love and fill your mind with his word and you will be overcome by the Holy Spirit and you will give a testimony. And that's how that works. We don't need that grace right now, but when we do, the Lord will grant it. Verse 12, now brother will betray brother to death and a father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Here's a headline from the Christian Post just six months ago. Egyptian mother of two has throat slit by family for converting to Christianity. And so this is happening today. It happened yesterday. It happened throughout the entire history of the church age. Jesus is concerned we not stray from the path on account of family pressure. Family pressures are intense trials for Christians. I I understand that. I had them myself when I was first born again. Right here in little old Kings County, many Roman Catholic families exert intense pressure on you if you get saved. I know my family did. Uh, and, And over the years, people have come to me and they say, Pastor Gene, you know, my grandma or my mom, they're really putting pressure on us to baptize our baby. Is it okay if our baby is baptized because we don't want to offend our family? And, and I tell them, maybe you'll disagree with this, but I tell them, hey, that's a matter of conscience between you and the Lord, but you wouldn't be asking me if you didn't think it was a problem. And so pray about it and do as the Lord leads. As for me, the answer is no, because this is a time when I can say to my family, I've been born again, I'm a Christian, uh, and, and you need to be born again as well. And so it's not a good time for compromise with people if they're not saved. And, and so that's just me. Um, but this happens. We have family pressures right here. Nobody's going to kill you probably, hopefully. Uh, but there's still intense family pressures. And that's what Jesus is saying. He says, don't be distracted from being on your mission because of family pressures. He says, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, it's sadly true that Christians are disliked and even hated for being harsh and judgmental and cruel, but Jesus was talking about all manner of people hating believers who faithfully represent him in their witness. How illogical is it to hate a person who loves you enough to risk their own livelihood or even their life to share with you Jesus Christ so that you don't perish eternally. Because that's really all we're doing as Christians. We're going to people and saying, you need Christ to save you from your sins. He needs to die in your place. Otherwise, when you die, you're going to go to a Christless eternity in hell. And I'm telling you that so that you don't perish. And then people say, I hate you for that. I want to kill you for that. Leave me alone. 
It's insane once you're a Christian looking back at it from that perspective. But until you're a Christian, your eyes are blinded and you see things much differently. Now, we argue over this phrase, he who endures to the end shall be saved. It might seem to emphasize effort in remaining saved, but it really doesn't. A saved person endures. A saved person perseveres to the end. It is the evidence you are genuinely saved, not a requirement for being saved. One commentator put it this way. This endurance does not produce salvation. It is spirit-empowered perseverance and proof of the reality of your salvation. Another said, perseverance is a result and outward sign, not the basis of spiritual genuineness. A person genuinely saved by grace through faith endures to the end and will experience the consummation of his salvation. One more quote. This cannot mean that they will receive eternal salvation because of endurance, because that would be a false gospel. You see, the gospel is that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so you can't come along and say, and you have to endure to the end to be really saved. Uh, There can't be any work that you and I do that earns us salvation. But if you are saved you will endure to the end. Now, Jesus' immediate disciples were consumed with thoughts of the kingdom of God being established. They argued over who would be the greatest in it. They asked Jesus for positions of power in it. Jesus had been hailed as king in his triumphal entry just a couple of days earlier, just as predicted in their scriptures. After Jesus rose from the dead, the disciples would still be focused on the kingdom. They would ask him about it right up until Jesus ascended into heaven. At the ascension, when Jesus was taken into heaven, they kept staring up into heaven as if they expected Jesus to be coming right back to set up the kingdom. It's, it's, kind, it's a comical scene, really. Jesus takes them out to the mount, and he ascends into heaven, and they just stand there looking up. You know, maybe he has to get a robe or something. Maybe there's maybe a crown, and then he'll be coming. Finally, two witnesses there say, two men in white say, what are you guys doing? This same Jesus who ascended into heaven will return, but it wasn't going to be that day. He didn't return that day. They waited in Jerusalem as commanded by Jesus and they received the Holy Spirit. They immediately started on their great commission and the predicted persecution began. Martyrdoms followed. All the things Jesus told them was going to happen started to happen. Then the temple was destroyed. This could shake the faith of these disciples wondering what was to become of the Old Testament promises of the kingdom and of a temple on the earth. I know it's hard to think like these guys. It's impossible actually. But for a moment, imagine what it would be like to not have the New Testament and to have the Jewish mindset that the kingdom is going to be established right now by the king and then to have all of that taken away including the temple which was the center of your life. And Jesus is saying, guys, don't worry. Everything is happening with God in charge. Just stay the course, preach the gospel, and you'll see how this works out. Wars, rumors of wars, natural disasters, family betrayals. Jesus told them and he told us ahead of time so we would not be moved from our mission to preach the gospel or to think that God's prophecies about the future could somehow fail or be changed. God will, by his providence, fully fulfill prophecy to the letter. Don't be moved. 
let nothing move you from vibrant faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the truth is, it's probably not something in prophecy that is going to really shake you up. When Britain exited the European Union, a shockwave probably didn't go through your faith, thinking, what about the European Union and the ten-nation confederacy? Oh! You you might have been concerned about it, thinking that, you you know, we were wondering. But it didn't shake your faith the way the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem would these guys. But there are things that shake your faith. You're probably going through some of them right now, some of you at least. Illnesses, betrayals, abandonments. And you look at your life and you think, Lord, here's your promise. It's on the wall at my house. You're going to give me a future and a hope. Jeremiah said that. I believe it, but I don't experience any of that right now. What's happening in my life is telling me I don't have any future and any hope I had has been dashed. It's been shipwrecked. What are you doing? And the Lord says, my promises cannot fail. I am faithful who promised. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. Stay the course. Fall back on what you know. And wait for him to reveal what you don't know. And so that's the word of Jesus. In a turbulent world with wars and rumors of wars and family betrayals and all of these things happening, stay the course. And that course is the Great Commission. It's to serve the Lord with joy and gladness in the power of the Holy Spirit. God is faithful who has saved you, and he has promised you a future and a hope. Now, in verses 14 through 37, don't let the construction of the third temple overtake you. Just when it might have been starting to sink in that the temple was going to be destroyed, Jesus started talking about a future event that must take place in the temple. Verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. The passage Jesus was quoting from the book of Daniel describes something despicable occurring that will, and I quote, bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Since sacrifice and offering can only occur in the temple, then both Daniel and Jesus were predicting a third temple would be built after the destruction of Herod's temple. Here's a quick summary of Daniel. He saw 70 periods of seven years each 490 years of God's prophetic dealings with the nations of Israel. This period of 490 years began with a decree of King Artaxerxes in 445 BC. He permitted the Jews to return and rebuild Jerusalem. 483 years later to the day, Jesus came to Jerusalem and he gave his life for sinners. That leaves a period of seven prophetic years unfulfilled. These years don't run consecutively. The first 483 do, but there's a period of seven years yet unfulfilled. According to Daniel, a future world leader is going to sign a covenant of peace with Israel that will allow them to rebuild their temple and reinstitute temple worship and sacrifice. But after three and a half years, this leader will break his covenant of peace with the Jews. He'll bring an end to their sacrifices and offerings. He'll commit the abomination of desolation that is predicted by entering the temple and proclaiming himself God and demanding to be worshipped as God. And that will trigger the final three and a half years of human history. And so that 
seven-year period, three and a half years leading up to this event and three and a half after it, is the final seven years that we know as the Great Tribulation. The abomination of desolation ushers in the last half of the tribulation. Jesus jumped ahead to that event and verses 14 through 27, he's looking beyond the church age in which we live and is describing events in the final three and a half years of the great tribulation, which will culminate in his physical return to earth. And so let's read them with that in mind. Verse 14. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days and pray that your flight may not be in winter now in one of the other gospels it also says pray that it not be on the sabbath day and when you read that judea the temple uh housetops rooftop patios the sabbath jesus is talking about jews in jerusalem in judea he's warning israel In the tribulation that when they see this man in the temple defile it, get out of Dodge. You're only going to have a few minutes to escape before he is after you in a terrible deluge of persecution. And he says in verse 19, for in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the creation of God, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. He's talking about a specific period of time that is the worst period of time ever in human history. I submit to you that has not happened yet. He's not talking about Hurricane Katrina or the tsunami or anything like that. He's talking about that all over the planet all at once. And this is definitely future to us. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake whom he chose, he shortened the days. Shortened means they will last the specified period of time, no more, no less. The great tribulation goes for seven years. The last half of it is 1,260 days, not 1,259 or 1,261. They will end as God has planned for them to end. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I've told you this beforehand. These are very specific instructions to Jews alive when the Antichrist makes his move. There will follow a time of unprecedented global trouble. The elect he's talking about are Jews who come to faith in Jesus Christ. It is a promise that God has not and will not forget Israel. It's interesting that so many Christian theologies today do forget Israel. They teach that the church has supplanted Israel. If you're ever listening to a message and somebody talks about the church in the Old Testament, what they mean is that they've confused Israel and the church, that it's just one. And what they really mean is that God has turned his back on the Jews and is only dealing with the church. And not only is that not true, it can't be true because How much can you trust God's promises to you if he will not keep his promises to Israel? So God made all these unconditional promises to Israel about having a king and having a land and having all of these things. And then he's going to say, eh, you guys blew it. 
I think I'll work with Gene. Hey, I'm not too, you know, I'm not too happy about that. But no, the truth is he will keep his promises to Israel and, of course, to the church as well. Verse 24. In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars of heaven will fail, the powers in the heavens will be shaken, they'll see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He'll send his angels, gather together the elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. There are those who say that the book of Revelation is about the events of 70 A.D., when the Jewish temple was destroyed and that most, if not all, of its prophecies are symbolic of what happened when the second temple was destroyed. That passage I just read, have any of those things ever happened in human history? The answer, of course, is no. None of the signs in the heavens happened at 70 AD. Jesus didn't come back in 70 AD. He still hasn't come back. We're definitely talking about a future beyond ourselves. It's the second coming of Jesus. He's going to return to the earth, and that is when he will establish and rule the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, guys, it's all right. I'm in charge. The kingdom promises will not fail. They cannot fail. But it's not going to be now, not in this temple It'll be later after the desecration of a third temple. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. Stop there for a moment. We immediately think the fig tree represents Israel. And it usually does. But in the case here, it doesn't because the Gospel of Luke gives us additional critical information. Luke says in chapter 21, verse 29, Then Jesus spoke a parable, Look at the fig tree and all the trees. And so he qualified it. So that they wouldn't be confused thinking it was just Israel. He's saying, hey, look at all the trees. Luke was letting us know that Jesus was using the life cycle of trees generally rather than saying something limited to Israel. And he says, learn this parable from the fig tree and all the trees. When its branch has become tender, puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. What? The second coming of Jesus. Just like you can predict summer is near by looking at a tree, you can predict that Jesus' second coming is near when you see the abomination of desolation. Verse 30, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. The generation that is alive, that sees the signs that Jesus just gave, will be the final generation. What he's saying is that once these things start, once the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel, three and a half years later, once he desecrates the temple, three and a half years later, I'm coming. Once that starts, there is no stopping it. There's not going to be any break in the prophetic timeline. The generation that sees those things will be the final generation before the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're skipping a detailed description of the Great Tribulation because these verses aren't about that. They're about strengthening the hearts of believers who find themselves in that terrible future troubled time. They are Jesus' promise that the world will end just as he said it would and that they can yet be saved at his second coming as he returns to set up the kingdom.
Then he says in verse 32, curiously, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. First of all, let's deal with the question, how can Jesus not know? Isn't he God? Well, of course, and as God, he's omniscient, but he's also man, and he's saying, in my humanity, I have chosen to limit my knowledge to not know the day and the hour. More to the point... People alive when the Antichrist is on the scene, they're going to be able to know when Jesus is coming. It will be 1,260 days after the abomination of desolation. Uh, Maybe they won't know if it's noon or 1205, but they'll know the day if they're keeping track. So what does he mean here? Taking the 12 then and us now, no one knows when Jesus is coming in his second coming because the tribulation hasn't started yet. It's impossible for us to choose a date. All these people who set dates, impossible to set dates because you can't set the date until the tribulation has begun. And since it hasn't begun, it could be a year from now uh, that the Lord comes to rapture his church and then starts the tribulation. It could be a decade from now. We don't know. And so that's what it means. And that's why it's ridiculous to set dates because these things have to happen first. Now, Jesus ended with the parable of the absent householder, and I'm glad he did. It's peculiar to Mark, and it's a final call to watchfulness. Pastor and author Warren Wiersbe says this, the parable of the fig tree cautions tribulation saints to watch and know the signs of the times. The parable of the householder warns all of us today. And so this is for us specifically. Take heed, watch, pray, for you do not know when the time is. It's like a man going to a far country who left his house, gave authority to his servants and to each his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping, and what I say to you, I say to all, watch. This is a word for every believer in every country through every century while the Lord is in heaven. It portrays him coming back at any moment unexpectedly. Thus it seems to be a different coming than his second coming, which he said would be preceded by certain signs. This reminds us of the promise that before the tribulation can begin... The Lord will return for his church. He will resurrect the dead in Christ. He will rapture those that are alive at that moment. Apostle Paul said something that fits with Jesus' warning. I'll read it to you from 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, talking to Christians, You brethren, you're not in darkness so that the day should overtake you as a thief. You are sons of light, sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, don't sleep as others do, but watch and be sober. The day Paul was referring to is the seven-year tribulation. It's like a thief coming upon the world to rob and destroy. It will not overtake Christians because we are in the light as believers. Knowing that the Lord's coming for his church is imminent, we ought to be watchful and ready, and we do that by exercising the authority Jesus has given us as his servants to each our own work. And so the rapture of the church, the resurrection and rapture of the church will precede the great tribulation. Some people think it's the trigger for it, that immediately after the rapture, the tribulation will begin. We don't know. The scripture doesn't say. But we know that the rapture is imminent. It could happen at any time. 
But until it happens, the great tribulation can't start, and so therefore you can't predict when the second coming of Jesus is until you get in the tribulation, and then you'd better have some kind of a calendar because it's coming like a freight train after the seven years is up. Now, I have a stern warning to issue to those who are not saved. Don't let the construction of the third temple overtake you. During the great tribulation, the Antichrist will allow the Jews to rebuild their temple. And if you're here and that's happening, it means you miss the rapture because you're not saved. And so if you're not a Christian here this morning, or if you're backslidden, you need to get right with the Lord because... As one of the brothers here likes to say, God ain't playing. I mean, this is, this is for real. This is a, a terrible time like nothing the world has ever seen before. I uh, can say this to the saved. The construction of the third temple will not overtake you. You'll be removed at the rapture prior to any of the events of the tribulation. But you're still subject to forces that want to see you stray from the path of following Jesus. In addition to deceptions and distractions, there's an inherent laziness we must overcome as we wait for Jesus' coming. His coming is imminent, meaning at any moment, but it seems that every moment he doesn't come makes us less watchful rather than more watchful. And I see this in Christian literature all the time. There's, especially lately, there's been a move away from prophecy in, in, totally. Uh, people are more worried about social issues. I'm not saying we shouldn't be worried about social issues or the environment or things like that, but Christians are like, hey, Jesus, you know, he could come back at any time, so let's worry about these things right now. And that's a dangerous position because the Lord said, no, I could come back at any moment. You know, in the movies, guys, they're on guard duty. The guards are always asleep when the enemy comes. Why is that? Because every night, night in and night out, they're on guard duty and they're struggling to stay awake and they got all their weapons and nothing ever happens. Nobody ever attacks. And so finally they start leaving their weapons home, they start bringing their flasks of wine, they're partying and stuff, and man, that's when the enemy comes. And that's kind of typical of Christians. The return of Jesus is imminent, but it could come at any time, who knows. And we start to let our guard down. I don't want to fall asleep in my chair every night at 8.30. (laughs) And I don't think I'm going to. When I sit down in my little chair, I think, man, I'm wide awake. This is going to be a lot of fun relating to my wife and watching a little TV or whatever. And then even when I'm asleep and I wake up, I deny that I've dozed off. (laughs) You're asleep. Pam used to say, are you asleep? She just says, hey, you're sleeping. And I go, well, no, I'm not. And actually, I'm not at that moment because I've been wokened. She says, do something. I I don't know. The chair I'm in now, it's specific, it's comfortable, but not to sleep in. And my neck's like that. I think, man, I can't even move my head. And I somehow get back on track. And then I think, okay, I'm, I'm up now. I've had my, my power nap. Next thing I know, it's two in the morning. I don't want to fall asleep. I, it just happens unless I take countermeasures. I have to take some kind of powerful countermeasures. Uh, I need to drink black medicine coffee late at night or death wish coffee or some kind of strong espresso. Chug that stuff down. And even then, sometimes, because I work so hard. (laughs) Slaving away, 
the care of the churches weighing me down. Oh, Lord. Anyway, but no, you know, it's because I'm an old man. But and the thing is, I, I have to take countermeasures to stay awake. We need to take countermeasures to be spiritually awake. The easiest thing for us to do is to fall asleep spiritually when we're in a great country like the United States. Where there are tons of problems, but nobody is cutting your head off yet. You can go to any church you want to and hear the gospel preached. You can go to churches and not hear the gospel preached. I mean, you know, it's, you could you do whatever you want. This is America and stuff, you know. So, I mean, it, you have to take countermeasures. You have to think, man, I got to get into this thing. Not to stay saved or to, you know, to end up saved. Because I am saved and I'm a soldier for Jesus Christ and I'm on watch. And I, I, you know, I don't want the devil to come in like a flood and destroy my life and destroy my family and destroy my church and, and leave me shipwrecked. But beyond that, I want to hear the trumpet when it sounds. I want to be the first one to see Jesus when the clouds part. I want to be the first one to realize if I'm going to stay in my street clothes or get a robe when the rapture takes place. You know, those kinds of things. Because Jesus said that he would return at any moment. And instead of getting more lax, we should get more and more excited.